Welcome to Lit with Charles, a podcast on all things literary where I interview people who've either written books or have interesting things to say about them. If you're like me, then you love reading, but maybe you're not sure what you should be reading or maybe you feel intimidated by conversations around books. The main aim of this podcast is to make literature exciting and accessible and hopefully make you discover new books and authors that are off the beaten track. In this podcast, I try to cover all genres and types of books, from serious historical nonfiction to trashy novels, and I talk to all sorts of authors so that it never feels like the same episode twice. After spending, you know, three days together, I had the sense that there was a story here that had to be told, and she said, you're going to figure this out, and I felt like this mandate, and of course also an immense pressure to do so and to deliver on my promise to a young, dying woman. Today we're talking about the pleasure of food and the tragedy of a life cut short. The book, Savor, A Chef's Hunger for More, is the story of Fatima Ali, a young Pakistani-American chef working in the U.S. who was featured on the TV show Top Chef and who was set to become an influential voice in the world of gastronomy when she was diagnosed with terminal bone cancer. Her dream of traveling the world and eating at a bucket list of the world's greatest restaurants was derailed by a sudden worsening of her illness at which point she decided to tell her story in a book that might help inspire other women of color to follow their culinary dreams. The result was this book, Savor, which charts her life from her childhood in Lahore, Pakistan, which was the beginning of her love affair with food, to eventually working in leading restaurants in the United States. The book has been nominated for a James Beard Media Award for Literary Writing. This is a really powerful book that packs an emotional punch because it's about dreams and ambition. It's about love of food and family and how all of that is ultimately so fragile in the face of illness and death. Sadly, Fatima Ali passed away in 2019. My guest today is Fatima's collaborator, Taraja Morel, who is a New York-based food writer who's written numerous food-related pieces for publications like the Wall Street Journal Magazine and Departures. She's also written a book called Soul of New York, A Guide to 30 Exceptional Experiences. She's worked for numerous restaurants and is also the author behind the food blog, The Lovage. She was brought in to help Fatima express her story working in conditions that were obviously very challenging given Fatima's condition and limited time. In today's episode, we talk about the work on the book, the life and story of Fatima and her passion for food, and how food is also a language of sorts. Let's start with the very unusual circumstances around how you collaborated with Fatima Ali in writing this book. I mean, there was very little time. The context must have been incredibly stressful. How did you navigate this? What was your approach? Well, I tried to clarify some of that in my introduction, but essentially what I thought I was setting out to do was a very different book than the one you read. So although, of course, from the get-go, we knew that time was limited, 
there was not the clarity about just how limited. And so my understanding was that she had more like a year. I think that was perhaps her understanding too when she decided to write a book. And the parameters just kept changing and shrinking. So by the time I spent my week with her, I think it had become clear to everyone that there was not a lot of time left. It was shocking for me to arrive to see her that first time and already for there to be such a sense of diminished time. And that was when I really had to make a decision for myself of what am I doing here? What can I do? What can I possibly add? This is not what I signed up for. This is not what I thought I was supposed to be doing. And in the end, every decision was made incrementally. So I decided simply to stay for that one week because I could, because it was I was there and that was something I could offer. I did not at that point expect a book to come out of it. When I made that decision, I just thought I'm here now and this woman would like me to be here and she's not got a long time left. So I'll just do this. And then I think on day three of our time together, I felt like I understood more of her and I suddenly had a sense of there's something here. It's not that I didn't think that there could be a book about her. Obviously, I would never have showed up to begin with if I hadn't thought that. But with our very diminished time together, I thought, how could this be? How can we possibly make a book? So after spending you know, three days together, I had the sense that there was a story here that had to be told and I had to figure out how to tell it. And then at the end of the week, as we parted ways, and she said, you're going to figure this out. I know you're going to figure this out. And I felt like this mandate and, of course, also an immense pressure to do so and to deliver on my promise to a young, dying woman. What extraordinary circumstance to transmit a life, as it were, the story of a life and a vision of cooking in such a short time. I'm curious how you connected and how food might have played a role because you're a huge foodie, you're a food writer. Obviously, that's one of the major reasons you were handpicked for this book. And how did food play a role in, in you and Fatima forming a connection in this very limited time? Well, as you said, it is, you know, I think part and parcel for why I was even considered for the job. But I think it gave us a sort of creative shorthand in many ways that we could talk about places that we both admired, that we longed to go to. I also went to cooking school. She went to cooking school. Those experiences, although, of course, we each have our own version of them, there is a universality to it, I think, to that feeling of of being, you know, somewhere on your first day and not, you know, knowing where you're going and not having friends. And, and I think that those feelings of trepidation are universal. So I think that there's that. But yeah, I think her having lived and cooked in New York City, which is my hometown, um, for the bulk of her career and her curiosity about certain chefs who I know, who I worked with, who she admired, who she longed to work with. We just, you know, like anything, as you excel and dive deeper into a field, it becomes smaller and you start to know the characters and you start to kind of like know where you might want to end up or who you might want to learn from. And so she and I had a commonality that we could discuss when talking about food in that way. I mean, I know you lived in in Barcelona at one point, and that's the setting for quite an important stage of the book and of her life and of her culinary development. Yeah. Was that a, a point of connection where you sort of reminisced about tapas on the, on the Ramblas or uh, not so much? That's a perfect example of how a commonality in both of our experiences helped me to do the work. 
But when she was talking in, in, about that trip specifically, she was speaking so vividly and so poignantly that I just didn't interrupt. As much as I could squeeze from her in those days without coloring it with my own experience, that's what I tried to do. On the back end, when she wasn't there to tell more of her story, that commonality of me having lived in Barcelona certainly helped me, I think, write about it and have a familiarity with simply things like the way a night goes there and the way you kind of flow from one tapas place to a cocktail bar or like the hike up the hill, you know, at the end of her night. I, I just, yes, it is fortuitous that we had some shared experiences like that. But when she was talking and when she was really able to share of herself, I honestly, I tried to just keep my mouth shut. And if she asked at some point for me to share of myself, I felt that I had to because here I was experiencing such an intimate time in her life and hearing so much about her. And I was happy to give of myself when she asked for it, but I tried not to interject myself too much unless she wanted me to. Another element of her culinary identity and, and of her life was, of course, Pakistani cuisine. She grew up in Pakistan. Uh, it's where she first awoke to her vocation as a chef. I even wrote a note at some point in the book when you're describing all this Pakistani food, like I was salivating. But how familiar with you with that aspect of her identity and of that food? Because it's really very well described. As I said, it's salivatingly well described. How did you find out more about it? Was it through that interaction or later research? Or It was a combination. But the truth is, is that I am still no expert on Pakistani cuisine. I mean, in terms of description, in terms of specifics, I think knowing how to cook in general helps one describe the process of cooking whatever is being cooked. However, I'm a total neophyte when it comes to Pakistani cuisine, and I leaned heavily on her brother there. Mm -hmm. And he was an extraordinary resource, as was her mother, obviously, is a massive part of the book. But leaning on them for details was essential to making this book happen without being able to ask Fatima certain things. Again, you know, the parts that she told me firsthand, I tried to touch and edit as little as possible. And the things that we had to fill in, you know, without her were much more challenging. But as a result of her brother and mom, it was possible. I mean, there are huge characters in the story, huge influences on her life, obviously. And I did really like that aspect of the book that, yes, it is about food, but there's also uh, so many other dimensions, especially the story and the perspective of Fatima's mother that is told throughout the book in parallel with her daughter's story to give two perspectives. I thought that was really poignant. How did that idea come about? How did you work together to make those two stories come together? Well, like many things, I think with writing a book or, you know, accomplishing anything, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. And the circumstances of this book were so strange and so un unusual and dire, frankly, that, you know, it was not always clear, as I said, that there would it would be possible to write a book. So what happened was after my week with Fatima, I came back to New York and I wrote a book proposal in, in eight days with the hopes that she would be able to sign off on it before she passed, which was not possible. She passed away two weeks exactly after I left her bedside, and she was already eight days later not in any shape to be reading a book proposal. So 
when her family came up for air again after her death, which obviously was excruciating and continues to be, they, you know, read the proposal and the agents read the proposal and everyone said, this is great. But the, our agents said, we're not sure that, you know, how can you have a whole book from one week with someone? And can you bring in other voices? And I said, yes. And they said, you know, I think her brother is so extraordinary and they had such a bond. And I said, he is so extraordinary and I adore Muhammad and he's the best in every way and so articulate and insightful. However, I think this should be a woman's story. Mm-hmm. And her mother also, you know, was very much had, had intimated to me in real time in Los Angeles in the hospital, you know, how can I be a part of this in some way? How can I support this? And so it was very clear to me that this should be women's voices. What a great decision because I, I thought that was clearly the relationship with Muhammad, her brother was a very powerful one. And yet the relationship with the mother had so many parallels that really layered the story in a, such a cool way. Also, I mean, I'm also extremely close to my mother. I also saw in Fatima's mother so much love and holding her hand through our interviews um, once Fatima had passed was, there was just, there was so much connective tissue there. And I just, it was just very clear to me that this had to be also the specificity of women's roles in Pakistani society and their experiences. I think that even the generational interplay between when her mom came of age and when Fatima came of age, there's such stark differences. And I just thought it would be an interesting way to show progress and also the confusion of life and and wanting our children to, you know, not have to deal with problems that we dealt with and and also how we might try to protect them and how that might backfire. And again, those are universal things. Even if the specifics are different, I think those are universal themes everywhere in the world for all parents and children. I think the fact that these stories are universal is what makes it powerful. And I, and I did love that show of progress between generations that Fatima's mom was constrained in all sorts of ways in Pakistan and, and how she had laid the groundwork for Fatima to then be able to pursue her dreams, it was super touching. And and that was a beautiful aspect of the book. There was in the book, I thought, a really interesting contrast between a certain sense of order with regard to cooking. And uh, Fatima expresses a few times in the book that, you know, she loved the order of recipes and following the instructions and but at the same time, there's so much freedom and liberty there. And I just thought that was a really cool contrast between this order and the liberty. How is that a common contrast in the cooking industry? Was that a deliberate approach to the storytelling? Or how do you view that balance? Well, I mean, to me, obviously, even in trying to tell a story in its most honest and factual way, of course, as a teller, I am going to color it inevitably with my opinion. And my sense from speaking to Fatima was that part of what she relished in cooking school and even pre-cooking school, you know, in the home environment of learning from her grandmother and teaching herself and just adoring the process of learning and being a student of something was the order. And I think that in part that may have come from her feeling out of control in other aspects of her life. You know, a child doesn't have autonomy. They can't decide where they live or, you know, what they do every day. They go to school, everything's laid out for them. And I think that this was a way for her to be able to 
follow very specific instructions and know the outcome. And I think that that was empowering for her. And then, of course, I think like with any artistic endeavor, you know, the fun comes when you're confident and knowledgeable enough to then start experimenting and to kind of lean into your own compass to help you find your way to do things a new way. But that really comes from knowing things to the point of them being wrote, you know, like you can't really experiment until you have the foundational knowledge to do something exactly by the book. Until you're technically proficient in, yeah, exactly. in the discipline. Yeah. But in terms of like the chaos of restaurants, yes, they are totally chaotic. I mean, it is the, absolutely <laughs> that dichotomy of, you know, the brigade and the, and the sort of army mentality in theory of a kitchen brigade with a leader, a captain, and and everyone knowing their position and, and doing their part and those parts working together to create a seemingly efficient and perfect and consistent product. Experience for diners. Yeah, exactly. But the reality, of course, is that there's so much chaos behind the past and <laughs> just the chaos of life as well. And and the reality of like there's a the kitchen scene where she's externing and she's done her job well and perfectly and you know someone else forgets something and it throws the entire system off and so yeah i think that that's always there and then of course there's the chaos of when you know one takes off their chef whites or their you know costume that makes you seem like your role and like everyone else and and you become a human and you become you know attractive or you're noticed in a different way because you're not just wearing your chef's hat or whatever. So I think I think all of that is a, an interesting thing that's at play in our industry. Absolutely. I, I want to come back to that balance between technical proficiency and the ability to be creative and experiment. She certainly seemed to have this balance where she admired a lot of artistic creativity in, in the chefs that she respected. and But she also seemed to appreciate very hearty, traditional, fair. And at times in the book, she dismisses, you know, some cooking is pretentious or you know, the, the, she uses the word frou-frou. And so where was the right balance for her? And more broadly, I'm very curious in, in terms of the gastronomical industry or sector, uh, where do you see that balance in terms of, you know, molecular cuisine versus very traditional but delicious food how do you strike the right balance and and where did she see that balance i think that she and i had a similar trajectory in terms of our perspective on answering that question i think that there is almost inevitably some awe and wonder that takes place when one is beginning as a student of a thing and for me as i was starting to dabble with food writing and started my food blog like it was the moment of molecular gastronomy and there was this curiosity and this wow about Ferran Adria and a square olive or, you know, a pear that tastes like a fish or whatever. I mean, you know, whatever, just bonkers, crazy ideas. <laughs> and that was sort of trendy and interesting and deeply scientific, of course. And I think that she also had those moments um, where she couldn't believe her eyes, you know, and just that appreciation and that feeling of wonder that can happen when you're learning something from experts. And I think I very much heard that in her when she was talking about culinary school and even just, you know, in her youth watching cooking shows and seeing what could transpire. Also, you know, she went to the Culinary Institute of America where you learn in a very Western way and very traditional style of cooking. And she leaned into that entirely. And that was also what she cooked professionally after graduating. But I think that 
she tired of it and she wanted things to stop being so rote and she wanted to feel that freedom to experiment a little and i think that she also wanted to go back to her roots in pakistan to the unpretentiousness of you know a roadside restaurant where the food is unbelievably delicious but you might be having it off a paper plate so i think that that was something that was definitely at play for her and i think as she it was always a, a sort of friction but like a positive friction there's an element in fatima's vision with regard to food that i really liked as well was that she had a dream of opening a restaurant her own restaurant and that restaurant she saw as almost a, an embassy for pakistani culture and pakistani cuisine and, and a place that would help to dispel myths or misunderstandings about pakistan is that a common approach in restaurants do you think or do you see food as a useful tool for this sort of almost diplomatic mission i mean i think it's an enchanting and incredibly charming perspective the idea of disarming someone through their taste buds and opening their minds through pleasure the pleasure of dining and being completely immersed in an experience you know this was another perfect example of like the creative shorthand where she said i want to open a pakistani uncle boons and Uncle Boone's is a Thai restaurant, but it's a Thai restaurant that is a former client of mine, extremely dear friends. So as soon as she said that, I understood what she meant. She said, I want, you know, Pakistani film posters on the walls and Pakistani music from the 70s blaring on the speakers. And I just got it because I know the Thai version, the reference so well. So it was just another example of like a synergy and that just allowed, I think, this to happen under these insane circumstances. But in a way, yes, I do think that. I do think that what better way to sort of find diplomacy than to like sit at a table together? You can't really share beautiful food with someone and really feel that they're your enemy. I just don't think you'd be able to do it. But also, I think it's a testament to her soul and just uh, her sort of open-heartedness and, yeah. and desire to change the world. So in terms of other ways to project food, obviously this is a literary podcast. I'm curious about what other books have you read that are connected to food that have inspired you in the past or what books might you recommend as great introductions to food, either novels or nonfiction? Is there a novel or a fiction writer that you think is a great reference in that genre? It's such a good question to think about it in terms of fiction. And I don't have an immediate answer for you, but I love that you posed this question and I feel like I want to find the answer. Mm -hmm. In terms of nonfiction, I can definitely provide some ideas. When I first met with Fatima to discuss whether I would even be the right person for this project, I suggested she read a couple of things. And one of them was a memoir by an extraordinary hour uh, chef restaurateur named Gabrielle Hamilton, who's mm -hmm. also a writer. I mean, you can't really ignore the fact that she, you know, went to University of Iowa writing program and wrote for the New York Times. And her book, Blood, Bones, and Butter, is a phenomenal example, I think, of a, a food-focused mm -hmm. memoir. Blood, Bones, and Butter, Blood being the first part, you know, Act One focused on her family, her youth, and her foundational sort of love and connection to food. And part two bones sort of her making her way on her own out in the world and being a teenager and a young person and you know making mistakes and and figuring <laughs> things out and all of it and three butter is i think sort of 
the love, the family, the everything, you know, is not perfect by any means, but it's the good stuff. It's the restaurant that she wanted to create, that she created, that, you know, she happens to be an incredibly stubborn woman who insisted on doing things her own way, which makes for delicious food, but probably not a ton of like margins from a tiny restaurant, single <laughs> restaurant in New York. She never opened a second restaurant. Wow. So she's she's an interesting character and it comes through in the book and her writing is just so lyrical and and really epitomizes her her way with words. And tell us about your writing. You have a blog, you've written another book. Uh, do you have any future projects? What are you working on uh, these days that connect literature and food? Yeah, I don't really write for my blog anymore. I just write for magazines and just use my blog as sort of my website catch-all for everything, but I'm sure that could change. And yes, I am working on my next book, which is another book about food. Mm -hmm. It's a memoir. It's about growing up in a food and wine obsessed family and my trying to get away from that and then finding myself returning to it and simultaneously you know, trying to leave the home of my youth and now once again living in it. Funny that. Because your parents were, are in the wine business, and so you really grew up in that environment. I did, yes. My grandparents started a very humble wine shop in the 1940s in New York called Royal and & Company, and my dad and his sister took over and really upped the echelon of the business in the 60s and 70s and 80s, and it just got to be one of the most reputable wine shops in New York. And that obsession with wine really colored everything about my parents' marriage, how I was brought up, who I am, what my priorities are. And so it's this next book explores a lot of those themes. Well, we're looking forward to that. Let's move on to our quick question section where we find out a little bit more about your literary tastes. My favorite question is, what's your favorite book that I've never heard of? Have you read James Salter? Oh, I love James Salter. Which one of James Salter's books do you prefer? I mean, I feel like how can you not love A Sport in a Pastime the most? Can I confess something to you? Yes. I've never read A Sport in a Pastime. Oh my God. I'm Sorry. saving it for my deathbed, I think. it's He's one of my favorite authors and I hear it's his best book. It's a little bit racy, but the conceit of the story is just so magnificent. And then just the his command of language and, and his incredible. word choice and, and the rhythm yeah. of his, oh, of his the, sentences. The prose I just, is insane. Yeah, I just, every page is like underlined. There's like more underlined than that left, yes. uh, not underlined. To our listeners, if you have not yet picked up a James Salter book, you must as soon as possible. He is the greatest American author, I think, of the 20th century. I, I absolutely love him. What's been your favorite book in the last 12 months? It's been more than 12 months since I read this, but I would say it would be Ayad Akhtar Homeland Allergies. Okay. I read a ton of Pakistani authors while I was writing Savor. I felt it was important. and To um, immerse yourself into the environment and culture. Yeah. And that was a phenomenal read. I think you would love it. But I'd say the best thing I've read in the last 12 months would be Alice Munro Labor Day Dinner, a oh. short story. But I mean, her work is just... Great, great author. Yeah, absolutely fantastic recommendation. What book in the last 12 months has most disappointed you? And on this podcast, we name names. So we're okay to say, look, I, I just didn't like this. Yeah. So. I'm embarrassed to even say I picked it up, but I have to put it down. Where the crawdads sing. Everyone like, 
every <laughs> mash, you know, bless her, she made a gazillion dollars, you know, <laughs> be bestseller. But wow, it's so bad. Wow. It, okay. Well, well noted. Thank you for, yeah. for sharing that. I haven't read it and I don't think mm. I will, but. No, don't. I, don't, I, don't. I, I, what book changed your mind? Such an interesting question. I feel like I have to go really far back for that one. And I think it's, you know, a cornerstone of American literature, um, which would be To Kill a Mockingbird, which, I you know, you read so young in school. And I think the mind changing that occurs there is you are sort of being told throughout, you know, Boo Radley is the bad guy. And, and then you realize he's not. And I think that that's a really interesting thing for a young person to realize is that, you know, we can't always listen to the signs of, of what we're told and we have to make up our own minds about people or situations. Great choice. Fantastic. If you could change the storyline of a single book, what would it be? I think maybe in a way it's like, does Seymour really have to kill himself at the end of A Perfect Day for Banana Fish, which is, you know, sort of the lead into the Glass family of J.D. Salinger. And, and it's so tragic because he's such a charming guy and adored by this young little girl that he's you know chatting with on the beach as she's waiting around or whatever and it's it's just so tragic but then i love so much every glass family story and they would not be the sort of insightful and extraordinary story tellers themselves that they are they would not have any tension without the extreme loss that they'd gone through great answer and finally our last question what's your favorite bookshop in the world well, probably The Strand because I adore old books and old editions. They don't have to be fancy editions. I just like something that has a patina. And the, the Strand, just for our listeners, is a fantastic store on Broadway in New York, which has been around for decades now. Yeah, it's been around forever. Yeah, it's amazing. Good choice. That's all we have time for today. Taraja, thank you so much for your time and for sharing your experience of writing this really beautiful, poignant book, Savor, with Fatima Ali. And it's the story of her life, her tragically short life. But what an incredible job you've done of honoring that life and, and that culinary vision. So thank you for that. And thank you again for your time today. Thank you so much, Charles. Here's a recap of the books that Taraja mentioned in this interview. The book with which she connected with Fatima over food is Gabrielle Hamilton's book, Blood, Bones and Butter, The Inadvertent Education of Reluctant Chef. Taraja also mentioned the book, A Sport and a Pastime by James Salter. That was her favorite book that I'd never heard of. She mentioned as a book that she had really enjoyed in the last 12 months, Homeland Elegies by Ayad Akhtar. And she also slipped in a short story by Alice Munro called Labor Day Dinner. The book that disappointed her in the last 12 months was Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens. The book that changed her mind was To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee, which is a classic of American literature. And it changed her mind, especially in terms of judging a character. And finally, the book that she wished had a different storyline was A Perfect Day for Banana Fish, which is a short story by J.D. Salinger, the author of The Catcher in the Rye. And this was the first of his stories to introduce his set of characters, The Glass Family. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Lit with Charles. If you have any suggestions or comments, you can always DM me on my Instagram account at Lit with Charles. I try to reply to all my DMs. If you enjoyed this episode, you should definitely subscribe or follow me. And more importantly, tell your friends and family.